great to see you here today. I'm excited about, I think, what God has in store for us. Um, by the way, if you're joining us on Facebook, welcome to. Um, have you ever noticed the tendency of people to um, be self-righteous? We would never do that, right? But others do that. It, I, have you ever noticed the tendency you might have? I, I'm, I'm throwing myself in this camp, too, of thinking you're right more often than you're wrong, and others are wrong more often than they're right. Have you ever noticed that bent we have kind of to always thinking we're more in the right than others are in the right? Uh, this is kind of inborn into our children. It's a natural sin tendency that we all have. If you raise multiple children, you will know at some point they will fight over toys. And the one who has the toy will gladly tell you why brother and sister are wrong in wanting that toy. Right? They see everything from their particular uh, view of things. And if, when you parent, basically half the time you're parenting, you're teaching your kids to be decent human beings. Right? To teach your brothers and the brothers and sisters to, to you know, uh, rightly, to, 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 to um, you know, treat them rightly and to value them and all that kind of stuff. But we have this propensity uh, to think about things in, in a way where we're right and others are wrong. It's called self-righteousness, and we just have that natural tendency as, as human beings who are fallen and aren't what we used to be before the fall of mankind. Um, think about how this demonstrates itself in, in a general format in our culture. Um, there's been this anti-establishment movement forever. And it always makes me kind of smile whenever I go to my computer and I begin to look something up on, <clears throat> on Safari on the webpage. The advertisement will show up and it shows these five people who are from Brookings. I have no idea who these five guys are, but they are definitely undermining and taking on this multi-million dollar business. Have you seen that advertisement? Yeah, some of you have seen it. I, I go, who are these dudes? But they're anti-establishment. They must be good. It's kind of a little bit of that self-righteous as big as bad and small as good. And then, you know, right now we have all this futuristic talk happening. And the people who are in that camp definitely come across as a bit all-knowing. And we're going to send a, a spaceship to Mars now and colonize Mars. And I tell you what, I, I want to be on that ship. How about you? If that ever takes place, all right, you guys are giving me a strange look right now. Anyway, then my dream, not your dream, evidently. But, you know, there's, when you hear them talk, there's definitely a bit of, you know, know-it-allism and righteousness that goes along with that kind of uh, endeavor. Then you have the minimalists among us, uh, better known as tiny home builders. And they, they are getting out of debt, which is a good thing, and they want to leave a small environmental footprint, which is a good thing. And so you have these shows, right, made up about these people building these tiny homes. Every time I watch one of those, I think, buy an RV. Why are you building this thing for thousands of dollars that weighs a gazillion pounds that you have to buy this super big truck to pull it around? Just buy an RV. It's cheaper. It's already done. It's called a tiny home. You know, so that's me. And... I'm sure that Vicky gets tired of me saying that every time we watch one of those. But I understand that people that do these, they want to be creative. Well, build a doghouse or something then. You know what I mean? I don't know. At any rate, you get what I'm saying. And then we see a lot of uh, what I would call self-righteousness around diets. Some people only eat meat. Tell you why that's right. Some people only eat vegetables. They tell you why that's right. Some people, they're all nuts and they just eat nuts and berries. 
All right, you caught that. That was terrible, wasn't it? At any rate, but you follow what I'm saying, and everyone has kind of their, they do it this way, and I'm right, and the rest of the world is wrong. It's just kind of a natural propensity for us as human beings to just think this way. Here's a couple of thoughts to ponder this morning as we get into today's message. Because we are made in the image of God, we have a built-in sense of the importance of righteousness. We just had that built into us. Although it's very, 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 very tainted by sin and by our sin nature. Okay, so just think on that. Because we're made in the image of God, we have a built-in sense of the importance of righteousness, but it's really messed up by our sin nature. Second thought I want you to ponder as we get into today's message is this. We worship God in spirit and truth. We worship God in spirit and truth when we love his righteousness and live in a way that reflects that love. So you and I live in spirit and truth. We become the worshipers that God intends us to be when we just love God's righteousness and we live in a way that reflects that righteousness. So in this fall series that we're in the middle of right now, we're talking about what it means to become intentional worshipers. And our goal is to get so preoccupied with God and who he is that we begin to really adore God in our hearts and revere him in our hearts and we begin to, to love who he is in our hearts so much so that that internal thing that's happening spills over to the way we do our external lives and we begin to live lifestyles that are reflective of that adoration and, and love of God. And when we begin to kind of live like that and understand that dynamic, you know what we're doing? We're worshiping. We're living a life of intentionality, of intentional uh, worship. This morning, we're going to wrap up our look into Psalm 145. We've been looking at this for several weeks in this intentional worship series. And thus far in Psalm 145, we've seen that God is great, God is compassionate, and God is faithful. And this morning, you probably guessed it, we're going to get to this idea that God is righteous. And so uh, we're going to look into his righteousness this morning. Um, so this thought needs to begin to occupy our minds, to preoccupy us, that God is righteous. So I would like you to read with me the last section of Psalm 145 out loud. We're going to read verses 17 through 21. It's going to show up behind me on the board. Just please read this out loud with me. Here we go. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. I just want to say amen so badly there. But that's the end of Psalm 145. So we see from this section of Psalm 145 that God is righteous. Now, what that means is he's right. He's always right. There's no wrong in him. He can't be reduced to a few truthful sayings. He is the embodiment of truth. We're told in John chapter 1 of the New Testament that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. It is who God is. He is truth. He is righteousness. That's his nature. So our big thought today simply is this. The Lord is righteous. It is who he is. It's how he's been revealed to you and I. So what I want to do with you this morning is dig a little deeper into what righteousness means and then how you and I experience that and how it should be a tool for us to use to worship our God. 
So a simple definition of righteousness is this. Being morally right or justifiable. Justifiable just means able to be shown to be right or reasonable. So basically, righteous means I am right and I'm showing myself to be right. Okay? You're getting a super simple definition. God is right and he has shown himself to be right. Amen? Amen? Thank you. I'm going to make you say amen. I'm going to train you guys up. God is right, and he has shown himself to be right. Now, when you go to the New Testament, we have been shown by Jesus Christ, it's been revealed to us in the New Testament, how we then experience this kind of righteousness of God. And this is point number two. Righteousness is experienced by relationship with Jesus and by his work of redemption. So righteousness for you and I is experienced as we're in relationship with Jesus Christ and it's by the redemption of Christ that then we can be ones who enter into this righteousness of God. Through Jesus, we become righteous. So when God looks at you and I, when we become a Christ follower and give our lives to Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, when God looks at you and I, then he sees Jesus in us and he sees righteousness. We're supposed to want to live a righteous life. It's supposed to be part of the heart change that Jesus has wrought in you and I as a follower of God. Part of the way that we demonstrate we're worshiping God is by imitation. In fact, I I say this. It's one of the keys to understanding how worship works is, is you imitate what you really value and what you really adore. And so if we really value God, if we value his greatness, his compassion, his faithfulness, and now his righteousness, then we'll begin to want to be ones that live that way too. It'll become part of what internally is going on in us. And it'll become externally evident. Imitation is, to me, a pathway of worship. So if God is righteous and we adore his righteousness and we revere him, then when we seek to live a life that's reflective of that righteousness, as we imitate God, we are becoming intentional worshipers. Here's the rub with this topic matter. How do you really do any of this? How does it really transpire in your life as a follower of God. I think there are two camps of error that you can easily fall into when it, when it comes to this topic of righteousness. One is legalism. That's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. That is not at all the righteousness that I'm talking about this morning. Remember, righteousness is living rightly. Legalism just says I do a whole bunch of things or I don't do a whole bunch of things to be okay. That, that's not the rightness that Christ brings to our hearts. That's a life taking approach to life trying to be good or trying not to do some things on your own my goodness you just get exhausted doing that and so much of the church has turned to legalism at times and substituted that for righteousness amen are you with me on this and so in days gone by you'd have dress codes or wear the hair up in the holy bun, we called it, or no makeup or whatever. You know, those are all kind of legalistic approaches to trying to become the righteous people God wants us to become. They, they, they don't work. They frustrate. But then on the other hand, and I see a little bit more of this move in today's church 
I, I see this opposite side I'm about to share with you, and that's kind of getting fatalistic about this, saying, well, I just can't do this. I'm not even going to try. God knows who I am. He's going to accept me for who I am. So why even make any effort? And blah, 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 right? And so we, we, we say, you know, we kind of take the Scripture in, in sense wrongly that, you know, we, we can't earn this, we can't do this ourselves. We take that as meaning that we don't even try. We don't do anything. No, we don't do that. That's being fatalistic. It reminds me of Popeye the Sailor Man. Anybody watch Popeye the Sailor Man when you grew up? Yeah, there he is. Handsome dude, huh? Any rate, Popeye the Sailor Man had a famous saying. Do you remember what it is? I am what I am. That's what I am. And he would, every time he ended a little cartoon, he would say, I am what I am. That's what I am. That's a terrible statement. If you're a Christ follower, sorry, I scared you, didn't I? The only thing good about Popeye the Sailor Man is he helps your kids eat spinach. But think about that. That's terrible thought process. I am what I am. That's what I am. Really? Is that what you want your kid to say to you when you say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should work on this change. And you're like, I am what I am. That's what I am. You'd send them to their room. I know it's just a cartoon, but that's fatalism, and we don't want to be that way when it comes to following Jesus Christ. And when it comes to things and topic matters like righteousness, we don't want to say, I can't do this. I am what I am, God. That's what I am. No, 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 no. You don't understand. It's not about trying hard. It's not about legalism. It's not about giving up. It's not about saying it can't be done. It's about understanding that this is who God is, and this is what you have in him, and somehow stepping into that and saying, yeah, this is true, God, even though I don't understand it. I, 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 I'm going to believe you, and I'm going to seek after this. In fact, I tell people when it comes to things like righteousness, don't try really hard, especially if you feel like, well, I'm not, you, Steve, you don't know what's going on in my mind. Yeah, I do, because it goes on in my mind, right? But we don't say, that's just the way I am. I give up. Instead, what we do is we seek Christ. We seek Jesus harder. We invite in him more. We ask him to change our, our hearts and motives, right? We get real honest and transparent before God. And say, God, I know that you said I've, I, I, in Christ I'm righteousness. I just don't feel very right. Be honest and seek God and say, God, give me the promise that you've promised me. Let this be something I begin to experience. Do something deep in me that I cannot do in myself. Amen. That's what you do with it. You don't just give up and you don't become one who tries legalistically to make it happen. Some of the answer uh, of this whole topic of righteousness and how we experiences ourselves is really revealed in the Old Testament practice of covenant making with all of its implications. Um, listen, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've asked the Holy Spirit to come live in you, you are now what is called by the New Testament a new covenant person. We just don't talk on this enough probably in the church and what it means and what it implies. But in the covenant relationship, if you were and I were going to enter into covenant relationship, if I was going to go into covenant with Chad and vice versa, it would begin with an identity exchange. That would be the first act of covenant making. He would look like me and I would look like him. And so when we enter into covenant with Jesus Christ, what, what Jesus is saying is my identity now becomes your identity and I have taken on your identity of sinfulness and took it right to the cross and paid the price uh, for your sinfulness on the cross where I hung there and died for you. So we're going to talk on that in just a, a, a moment, but let me give you the point. This is point number three. Uh, righteousness is illuminated by an Old Testament practice. It's the practice of covenant making 
uh, that illustrates how the righteousness of Jesus then can be experienced and is to be experienced. So how do we live in a way that we experience uh, this righteousness of God? Do we try really hard? No. We already said that's legalism. Do we just give up? No. That's fatalism. What we need to understand is, is what God is actually saying when he says we're new covenant people, how to step into that and its implications and begin to say, okay, this is who I am in you, Jesus. Then, then I pray for this to take place in my life and I pray for me to experience this. That's kind of what I'm saying today. Don't forget this as I go through the rest of this message because it's easy to get lost in this message, all right? And all, all, the, uh, all the little uh, nuances of it. But if you're not going to take anything else away, take this away. You are to experience the righteousness of God. And the way you do it is by abiding in him more. By letting Jesus into your heart more and more and more, okay? Amen? You got that part of this? I think part of the reason we don't experience some of the things that God promises to us like righteousness uh, uh, is first, we try to do it on our own, and we can't. And secondly, I don't know if we really love it. I think in us, when we think of things like righteousness and truth of God, in us, unfortunately, is some deep-seated misconceptions. One is that we're going to be losing out on something if we really let the righteousness of God prevail in us. Because after all, fun things are always questionable, right? That's such wrong thinking. And then even that, we, 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 don't, we don't know even if we want it. And we have to get that honest before God. Perhaps we're not experiencing some of the righteousness that Jesus has promised to us simply because, one, we, we don't want it. We think we're going to miss out on something. And we have to begin to say, that's a lie. We have to speak to this. That is a lie. That is the best way to do my life is not to do these questionable things that the world says are fun and to say the things that God has promised are boring and they're going to take my fun away from my We have to just get that honest. And then we need to pray that God changes our heart, that we begin to love his ways and love his righteousness. So for a few moments, I'm going to explain to you what it means to be in covenant with Jesus, what it means to be a new covenant follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use the Old Testament example of covenant making. Now, my goal this morning is not to explain this thing in this entirely to you. I've done that before here a few years back. I put a piece of this note-taking guide that, that's going to appear in the, over behind me out there that's on covenant making. You're not, you don't have that in your bulletins because I didn't want to lose you in that detail. So, but if that really fascinates you this morning, just go out to the information center after church and you can grab a copy of that from uh, that desk. Um, <clears throat> after I expl briefly explain this, then I'm going to just zoom in on this first part of covenant making because that's what's dealing with our righteousness this morning. So we are new covenant people. Jesus has ushered in the new covenant. That's told to us by Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, okay? He has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Those who receive Jesus then are the recipients of the blessing of the new covenant. So how do you become a new covenant partner? By receiving Christ by faith and asking the person of the Holy Spirit to come live in you. Amen, right? Then you are in new covenant. Whether you realize it or not, you are now a new covenant person. Let's define covenant. It's an all-encompassing agreement between two parties. And it contains clearly outlined parameters and promises. So it's an it's a, it's a all-encompassing agreement. There's no back door. It's done. And it contains certain parameters and certain promises. This is where now covenant making really comes in handy to understand what we have in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. 
So let's begin, and I'm going to walk through this covenant-making process with you from the Old Testament really super fast. Um, so imagine you and I are living in Old Testament times, and we want to enter into covenant. Uh, the first thing we would do is have a changing of identities that would take place. In those times, the outer garment identified who you were as a person. So what you would do, if I was going to enter into covenant with, uh, I have to pick another man, Bruce. Bruce and I are about the same size. He would give me his garment, I would give him my garment, and then from that point on, when I come walking up, you'd think I was Bruce, and, and, and the, the, you know, Bruce, people would think he was Steve, okay? So, so there would be a distinct changing of identity. Um, this is, this is uh, uh, the beginning point uh, of covenant making. So you can, from a distance, you could see somebody, and you could say, oh, that person has a gate of such and such, but they have that garment on that's not theirs. And you identify them by the garment. For example, I used this first hour. It said Steve Warner's here, second hour. I'm going to use it once again. So, you know, he wears a Cleveland Browns uniform. Nobody else in the church wears that. All right? I mean, you know, and then they won a game here, 1 in 31 or whatever they are, and everyone parties like crazy. That's really cool. All right? So if he wears that Cleveland Brown uniform. I can tell from a mile away that's Steve Warner because nobody else is going to wear that uniform. Right? So if I enter into covenant with him... He, he might give me that jersey. I'd put it on. And then from a distance, you would think I was Steve Warner. You see these Cleveland Brown jerseys, but you get close up, you know. Deep down inside, I'm purple still. So you don't follow what I'm saying? But you follow, no, I'm, that's a terrible joke. But anyway, that, 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 that's what this changing of robes was. So now understand this. In Jesus Christ, because we're in New Covenant, we've had an exchange of robes that's taken place. He has taken on our sinfulness. He went to the cross and paid the price we could not pay, and he died for us, and he redeemed our souls. And at the same time, then he gives to us his robe of righteousness, and you and I become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? There has been an identity exchange. You don't try hard to do this. You don't fatalistically say it can't be done. You have to step into the promise. It is what has been given to you and I because we are new covenant people in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then the question doesn't become, is this true or not true? The question becomes, how do I live it out? You pray for it and you live as though it's true. Amen? That's where you start. All right, second thing that would happen, now I'm going to go really fast. Some people said I'd speak too fast, just listen fast. That's the way it is. Here we go. There would be the exchange of belts. That is a strength exchange. Your strength becomes my strength. My strength becomes your strength. In, in Old Testament times, then, if your enemies attacked you, I would come alongside you and help you. If my enemies attacked me, you would come alongside and help me. In Jesus Christ, we have a strength exchange. His strength becomes our strength, and our weakness becomes his, so to speak. So Paul is praying because he has a thorn in his side that won't go away. Three times he prays, and God says to him, my strength is sufficient for you. There you go. That's covenant talk. He's saying, I'm going to be strong in you, Paul, and your weakness, I'll be strong. So we have an exchange of belts, strength exchange. Then there's an exchange of weapons that takes place next. Basically, what is being said is, your enemies are now my enemies, and my enemies are now your enemies. And in Christ, this exchange means this. The devil now becomes our common enemy, and Jesus takes on our enemy of death and conquered it for us. So this exchange of weapons means that Christ has conquered death for us. Death no longer has... Uh, hold over us, the sting of death is gone in Jesus Christ. Third thing that happens in covenant making of the Old Testament was this practice of sacrifice. The whole thing would be sealed by a bloody sacrifice. The, the blood would seal the deal. 
Jesus, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, shed his blood to seal the covenant for you and I. So by his blood, this is the real deal. You know, by the way, we sing about the blood of Jesus Christ and talk about the blood of Jesus Christ all the time. If you're, if you're not a believer, that's going to seem really strange to you, okay? And so just be, just be aware that if you're ever talking to somebody and they don't know anything about Christianity and you start saying, oh, the blood, the blood, the blood, the sweet blood of Jesus, they're going to think you're just strange. Explain that to them just a little bit, you know? Take the time to explain to people why that's important. Then there's the walk of death after that. The, the sacrifice would be laid on the ground, and the, the two would walk through this bloody mess, and by that walk of death, they're saying, I die to myself, I become intertwined with you, I no longer live, I live in you, and vice versa. Well, in Jesus Christ, we know that's the case, right? We diminish, we cease to exist, and as we take the bloody walk of death with Jesus Christ, we come out the other side saying, I no longer live, but he lives in me, Amen. And we've become one with Jesus Christ and vice versa. And then there's the mark on the body that would be next. You would, if you went into covenant with somebody, you would mark your, your wrist most likely, in, and that would be a sign. So if somebody started to attack you, you'd go like that. I'm in covenant here. If you mess with me, you mess with somebody else. Kind of gives a different idea to hand-waving, isn't it? You know, and anyway, they, 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 the sign of the mark would be on your wrist and it would say, I'm in covenant with this other person. You mess with me, you gotta, you got to mess with them too. We have a mark from Jesus Christ. Do you know that, right? He circumcised our hearts. Amen? His mark is on our hearts. And that's why I love, I love what the New Testament has done to covenant. Because in Christ, there's an internal rendering of the heart. Amen? When you, when you come to Jesus Christ, you're no longer the same. He marks you. Deep inside your body, you become his. It's this internal rending of the heart and giving of our heart to, to Jesus in love. And he says, I circumcise your heart. I change your heart. I take your heart of stone and I turn it into a heart of flesh. And, and so we have the mark of Christ in us and our hearts are circumcised. And then next is a pronouncement of blessing and curses. And... Um, in Jesus, we get all these blessings pronounced on us. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're uh, going to receive all the benefits and blessings of being a Christ follower. It's quite a good deal. And then there's a covenant meal that would take place in the Old Testament times. They would sit down and share uh, a meal together. Um, and in our case, it's communion. It's our covenant meal. Every time we do communion, we're, we're saying, I'm in covenant with Jesus Christ. I'm a new covenant person, and I do these things in remembrance of you, Jesus, and remembering who you are and what you've done for me. And then there would be an exchange of names after that, uh, uh, that if you're covenant partners, you would take on the, the name of, your, of, your, uh, of the one you're going in covenant with. Well, for us as Christ followers, guess what? We're called Christians, Christ followers, and Jesus was called the Son of Man. Constantly call himself, I'm son of man. Why? Because he's taken on our name. He's taken on our plight. And then lastly, there's exchange of firstborn males in ancient covenant making. I would give you my firstborn son and you give me your firstborn son. And that would really make us align with the covenant because after all, now my family's your family and your family's my family. Well, what did God do for you and I? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's covenant talk. Seeing how this works? So the covenant itself is really cool. If you want to get any more information on that, you can go out to the information center and get it. Let's go back now to that very first part of covenant making in that ancient times, the exchanging of identities. And that's what I want to dwell on today. This is key. It's paramount to understanding how the righteousness of God uh, comes our way. 
it says there basically that Jesus took on our sin and he took on our unrighteousness and he carried that right to the cross and died for us. He took on our identity. He looked like us as he went to the cross and died for our sins. Now, God says, because of that, we have the identity of Christ. We get his identity, right? And now we look to God like righteousness. And we can't think this is just some kind of minor detail. It's major to understand. We who say, I love you, Jesus. I believe you're the Savior of the world. I want you to be my Lord. We who say that, we who have said, Holy Spirit, come in me, live inside me, empower me to become something I cannot become myself. We who say that are now in new covenant with God. Now we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, and our identity is in him, and that identity contains this understanding of righteousness. Amen? We are this. This is who we are. And we have to submit to that, believe it, and pray for it to be a reality if we're not experiencing it. And if we start loving the things of the world, then we have to pray, God, help me to love those things that are right. There are a couple of scriptures here that I think are really informative when it comes to this whole exchange that's taking place. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is nothing more than covenant language. And what has happened in Christ, this exchange that's taking place. Then if we're struggling and we're saying, man, you know, I'm having a hard time, then Romans 13, 14 kicks in and says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think how to gratify the desires of your flesh. So if we're struggling with, you know, not wanting to put on Christ, whatever you want to use for language there, then, then Paul is saying, clothe yourself with Christ. Seek Christ. Let him fill your heart so much so that, that, that you're not going to think about how to gratify the former things of your life. So by the wording of clothing and all that, what, what we're seeing is that this is, a, this is kind of like a picture that we're supposed to get in our minds of, of what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, by putting on Christ and all that stuff, uh, people from a distance are supposed to look at you and I and say what? See whom? Jesus. We're supposed to look just like Jesus. That's a big point of, of this kind of language here so that we understand we're supposed to look like Jesus. And so when we become a Christ follower and we're filled with the person of the Holy Spirit and we're in a new covenant, then what is supposed to transpire is this. We're supposed to love God's righteousness and we're supposed to love doing right and we're supposed to be filled so with, with the power of the Holy Spirit that we're clothed and we look like Jesus Christ. And when people see us, they go, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. Amen? That's what's supposed to happen here. Do you think our culture needs that today? What do you think? When a culture that's illiterate, when it comes to the things of God, that's far from God, that doesn't understand anything about God, how are we going to begin to even speak into such a culture? By looking like Jesus Christ. Amen? And being ready then to give an answer for the hope that we have in him when people see that we're entirely uh, uh, different. The question becomes, will you and I submit then to this provision made by God? Will we seek after it? Because he has made provision for you and I to really experience this righteousness. It's not just something to talk about on church on Sunday morning, something to be experienced by you and I. And I do this all the time in my attempt to be authentic and all that kind of stuff with you. You know, I talk about my own failings, and I have lots of failings, but I just I wanted to say this. 
We're not Popeye. We aren't what we are, and that's what we are. We're in Christ, and Christ in us is greater than anything we can do in ourselves. And Jesus will truly transform you. I look back at what I was when I was 17 years old. I am not even remotely close to that person anymore. Because Christ is unchanging me, amen? Do I have a long way to go? Yes. And I think the older you get, the more you just see your neediness of Jesus. If you're in the right path, if you're a healthy place, the more you really see your neediness of Jesus Christ and and you get more dependent upon him, but the more also your life is drastically changing, amen? And you're getting more and more the look of Jesus. That's how this works. We're to look like Jesus Christ, and when people first see you and I, they're to see Jesus Christ. And when we get to that place, then we're worshiping God. So we worship God who is righteous. We worship God who is the embodiment of truth. There is no shadow of turning in him. There is no hint of wrongdoing in him. He is by nature right. So I want to end this morning by getting us a little bit preoccupied with God's righteousness once again. Psalm 36.6 says this, Your righteousness, God, is like the mighty mountains. And I remember this vividly. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Tetons when we took a trip out there with Vicki and I. And I I remember getting out of the car and looking, and we couldn't get a campsite because at that time we didn't realize that you had to get those campsites like five months in advance or whatever. And I remember thinking, ah, these are just amazing. They're huge. They're not something you would look around and say, what's behind them? They occupied your sight. They took up the space in front of you. This is God's righteousness, beloved. It is to take up the space in front of us. It's to be like the mighty mountains. It's just to occupy our attention. It's to be something that obscures our view. And so when the righteousness of God takes on its it's proper, you know, viewpoint in our lives. It's like the mighty mountains. It just takes up the space in front of you. You can't look around. It obscures your thought, sight. It's kind of what you see. So when you look at God and when you think about God, you're supposed to see the mighty mountains of his righteousness looming before you. And the cool thing about all this is this. In Jesus Christ, you and I enter into that righteousness. Amen? We become part of the landscape of God. Whatever terminology you want to move, you use there. It is just so mind-boggling to me to think about this that sometimes I don't even know how to put it in words. But I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you. When you think of God's righteousness, think of the one thing that just, when you look at it, overwhelms you as a person. Just takes your breath away. That's God's righteousness. It's like the mighty mountains. So that's where we're going to end today with that little bit of preoccupation on God's righteousness. Next week, we're going to kick into the New Testament and look further into what it means to be an intentional worshiper uh, as we get to God incarnate, Jesus in person. But for today, let me give you a super quick 10-second review of the last four weeks. We've seen that God is great, compassionate, faithful, and righteous. These things need to preoccupy our minds to the point where they change our inner man, our inner woman, and they spill over into the way we do our lifestyles. And when that happens, we're worshipers that God intends. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, we worship you this morning because you are indeed righteous. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. It's like the Grand Tintons. It's like the Rocky Mountains. It's like, you know, the biggest thing we can think, Mount Everett or Mount Rainier or whatever. It's, a, it's just something that when you get to the base of it, you just go and you go, whoa, it just preoccupies. It just takes up the space in front of our, us, Lord. That's your righteousness. Uh, God, we praise you 
that you're the embodiment of righteousness. In fact, Jesus, when you came, you came full of truth. You came as God incarnate as the embodiment of righteousness and you presented to us what it looks like to live rightly. God, I thank you that you've given us this revelation. Help us now, Lord, to love this righteousness, to not substitute some form of legalism that's life-taking in place of living right, not to think fatalistically, because that takes our life away too, Lord, to think it can't be experienced. But help us, Lord, by your grace, to seek after your righteousness and to embrace it and to embrace what it means to live a right life before you, God. Would you grace us to be people just to reside in that space, Lord, where right before us and around us, our, our life is obscured, uh, or excuse me, our view of life is, is just obscured by the idea of, of righteousness. We just see it everywhere. God, we love you and praise you today. I pray for the people of Grace Point that when people see us from a distance, they would see the clothing of Jesus on us and they would see the righteousness of God a life rightly lived. God, we love you and praise you. Thank you for this message today. Now as we enter into this moment of of singing to you, may it be done so with hearts of adoration and hearts full of reverence towards you as we exalt your greatness and your compassion and your faithfulness and your righteousness. In your name, Jesus.